Welcome back to the Underdog Soccer Podcast. This is Matty Nips bringing you more USMNT content as always. So tonight on this episode, or I guess today, whenever you're listening to it, we got Justin and Marcus talking about the recent USMNT camp. Um, they went into the, the three games, the three qualifying games that were just played against El Salvador, Canada, and Honduras. Um, and then they also kind of spent a good amount of time talking about Greg Berhalter uh, and, and how successful or unsuccessful he's been throughout the World Cup qualifying 11 games so far. So um, good content here. Make sure you guys listen. Make sure you guys also follow those two guys on Twitter. Uh, Justin is at KickSwish. Marcus is at Chasing a Cup. And hope you guys enjoy this next episode. All right. Hey, guys. Welcome back. And uh, I've got Justin here. What's going on, Justin? Hey, not too much, Marcus. Yeah, we want to, you know, look at this last window. Uh, you know, we got three more games left. How you feeling uh, coming out of this window? Not too bad. We're in an okay position. We should qualify next window. It's a little frustrating that it has taken us to this point and that it is going to come down to some of these results in the final window where we have some of our toughest games. So, uh, but not too bad. I think we have the players. There's no excuses for not getting results here in the March window. Um, we should be expecting to be in Qatar. So uh, the team's not in like a dramatically awful place, but you do see room for improvement for sure. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it would have been great, you know, and I think we've had the opportunities to put this away before this window. Um, you know, now I think Greg's in kind of a tough spot. You know, do we do we hold everything back and, and go for the win at home against Panama? You know, we've won three in a row against Mexico. You know, he's kind of put himself in a tough spot. However, as you said, we're in second place. You know, there's a lot of good things um, to take out of this. I think he started to get that A squad pretty much set or close mm -hmm. to set. So I think, I think there's some good things. Um, what do we want to talk about today? I mean, obviously there's been three games. There's been a, a window, uh, you know, we want to talk a, a little bit about our assessment of Greg, but you know, what, what do we want to dive into today? Yeah. Just go through the window. We'll talk about the games, the lineups, the performances, the tactics, the results of those three games, and then kind of back up and have a bigger picture discussion. You know, there's so much infighting in the fan base and so much, um, toxicity, if that's the word you want to use, back and forth of a group of fans who are just so upset that Berhalter is the coach right now and just want him gone ASAP. And then there's there's a group of fans that say, we can't even talk about that. There's no way that we could let the coach go. We're in the middle of World Cup qualifying. Look how that went last time. And so we're trying to bridge the divide and actually have the conversation to say, okay, there are definitely things that could be negatives about changing the coach. We want to talk about those. We want to address those. And then talk about how do we assess the coach? What are the standards? Um, what is it? What is a fair assessment? How does the player pool come into it? All those things. I actually hate the word toxicity. I, I hate. I do not agree with that term being used. I feel like people that don't want aren't agreed with throw that term out very quickly. It's like if I if I'm pro Burhalter and someone says, "Well, I, I challenge that," that's mm -hmm. toxic. You know, if I mm -hmm. if I'm for this player. And I was like, ah, there's some flaws in your thought. Then I'm toxic like that. Mm -hmm. I hate how it's used with mm -hmm. the U.S. national. Like, I think there's just people that are challenging the status quo or norm. Uh, I can't remember. I think it was Twelman that talked about it, you know, before 2018. He said, I think winning has masked a lot of issues with this team leading into the Trinidad and Tobago loss. You know, I think it was him that talked about that. And I agree. You know, I think sometimes winning can hide flaws. And, and I think we've become complacent. 
uh, with winning CONCACAF or being, you know, one of the better teams in CONCACAF like that, that's expected. That was expected <laughs> historically. And now we have one of the highest talent pools we ever had. We should be winning in my opinion, much stronger and, and, and should not be waiting to the last window to the last game, putting pressure uh, in the situation. It's unnecessary with the talent we have. Yeah. It's a unique circumstance to be in this confederation where there are a couple of stronger nations like Mexico for sure. And Canada has come on strong but where we should be expected to win almost all of our games because you can skate by on mediocre performances or just okay performances and the true issues don't bubble up to the surface until too late. And now we've spent two, three years on something that really doesn't compare or doesn't uh, help at the World Cup. And um, also where the critique can be harsh because when we are expected to win every game, then now every result, any draw, any, any one zero win now can be seen as not enough. But I think the most important piece is actually to analyze and critique the performance. It's not about, did we win? Did we draw? Those things are hugely important, but what's beneath it is the performance and how is that going to translate to higher level games? I agree with that. And I, I think some people would say, you know, we look with rosy colored glasses at guys at Chelsea and Juventus and Barcelona and, my, my argument is the gap between MLS all-stars and USL players, like that's the gap in CONCACAF, right? Like that's, that's really the gap. Now, Canada aside, Mexico aside, you know, but beyond that, you know, the gap should still be significant, even if you discredit, you know, Pulisic isn't playing that much, you know, whoever, you know, I, I, I think there's like, there's rosy colored, you know, glasses. And then there's just the reality of the gap of what it should be, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you even talked about how when Joko was in USL with Louisville, how he played against Junior Flemings, who is a full Jamaican international. He's with them in international windows. You know, that is the gap. And so and it's not that every time that the USMNT steps on the field with guys like Pulisic, Dust, McKenney, that every time they step on the field, we expect a first minute goal and then a fifth minute goal and a dominant performance throughout. There, there's a, a balance there where they shouldn't look dramatically worse with the national team than they are with their club teams. It's things might not flow as easily and things might not be as automatic as far as their choices and their decision-making because they're not training with these guys every single week, the way they are with their club teammates. So we're not expecting them to look like that perfectly well-drilled machine, but it shouldn't be the case that every player's level also looks dramatically lower than the level that we see week in week out with their club. No, I agree with you. Well, you want to, you want to jump in? Let's, uh, let's talk roster. Obviously, you know, the, the roster has been selected. We've gone through the window, but anything you want to touch on uh, from the roster as, as we kind of go into the couple of games and, and, and talk about Burhalter uh, that you want to kind of talk about off of the roster? Yeah. Like you said, all the analysis has been done, but just because we are reviewing the roster or sorry, reviewing the window, I do think it's good to at least reference John Brooks again. And the fact that Greg left John Brooks off the roster. And I pulled up a couple of quotes from Greg. Let me see if I can get this quote about There's John absolutely Brooks. absolutely nothing beyond swarm with John. Um, we think that you know, he, he has the opportunity to play a role with us for the future for this window. We decided based on, on how we're looking at these games and what are the strengths of our opponent that he wouldn't be the best fit for this particular window. We're hoping that he regains his form for Wolfsburg and they can they start winning games. And, and move themselves up the table. And he's a key part of that. There's absolutely nothing beyond form with Jock. So there's nothing beyond form, right? That's the key, the key argument. And, and that he needs to move up the table with Wolfsburg. Like, essentially, if you want to be in this USMNT camp, 
you need to be higher in the Bundesliga and performing better in the Bundesliga than you are currently. Um, and I'm open to that argument, but when three of the other center backs on the roster are Miles Robinson, Walker Zimmerman, and Mark McKenzie, it doesn't hold. And I have no problem with Robinson or Zimmerman being on the roster. They've generally performed well in World Cup qualifying. Um, McKenzie hadn't played a club match in over a month at the time when the roster was released. He did get one club game before actually joining the team. But uh, Zimmerman was two months out from a club game, and he did have the friendly in December. And Miles was, I think, three months out because his last game was in the playoffs with Atlanta, and then he was not part of the December camp. He'd, he'd been used a lot during the year and needed the break. So the decision to leave out Brooks and then to justify it based on form was disappointing, and especially as we get further into the window, because we know that Brooks brings this incisive passing that can really help to break open teams, especially when they're sitting in a low block. So that was the main, the main takeaway from the roster. We can, we can get into four right backs and one left back and no Joe Scali, but I think it's just sometimes a question of when we evaluate Greg, part of it is how is he developing the player pool? And that's not developing the individual players. Like they're going to come into camp and one week later be this totally different player. But as he builds chemistry and cohesion, and as he builds confidence, like we can talk about Pepe's confidence this window. Um, he does have a huge impact on who is um, feeling like they're part of the national team, who actually is part of it, and um, setting those expectations. You know, Luca yeah. De La Torre is, is another one we can get into, but that's probably good on the roster. Yeah, I, in Greg's defense, a little bit, there's a lot of speculation around off the field issues with Brooks. And so to his credit, you know, if that's the, if that's the truth, you know, he, he wants to protect him by, by talking about form in a, in a year that, you know, Brooks is coming up on a contract. You know, we saw the scathing uh, article you mentioned from build, uh, which is, uh, you know, I've got some questions about that. And the author as I kind of dug in, you know, he, he doesn't seem to be too positive on John Brooks uh, as he writes, even though he writes consistently about Wolfsburg and their great defense. So um, don't know, um, but from a speculative perspective, you know, maybe, maybe it is an off the field issue and, and, and Burhalter is trying to protect Brooks's reputation, uh, by, by not doing that. And, uh, Busio was out. Um, you know, there's again, speculation that Luca was included because of Busio being out. We don't know for sure. Um, but you know, to, to, to some credit, uh, Luca was there, um, you know, obviously he's in the depth chart. I don't know how many games it's been since we've seen Leggett, but clearly he, he's coming for some sort of locker room not necessarily his play, uh, you know, uh, from, from that perspective. So just a couple of other call outs on, on the roster. Um, and then he did not include, was it Lennon? And somebody else was left off as well that people were upset about, but then, you know, by the time it came to the final roster, they weren't included. Legit was the other one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that Lennon actually had some type of injury or something that okay. got him removed from camp after he was named to the actual qualifying window roster. He might've traveled for the first game and then picked up a knock or something like that, but no, he didn't feature or, or have any role to play. Right. Yeah. All right. So yeah, diving into the first match. Uh, so we played El Salvador uh, one, uh, one zero, you know, what do you want to, what do you want to talk about that? Uh, you know, what do you, what did you see in the game? What were some, some struggling points, some, some good, you know, what, what are some thoughts there? So, yeah, starting with the lineup, I think the fans were mostly pleased with the selection. Um, Greg does seem to have settled on most of what his starting lineup looks like when everyone is healthy or when most are healthy. The MMA midfield is obvious. Dest on the right and Jedi on the left is obvious. 
there is some change with the center backs and with the goalkeeper. Um, Pulisic and Wea seem to be locked in when healthy, when when doing all right. And Aronson's right there on the wing as well. We're hoping to get Gio Reyna back soon, right? And then maybe that changes things a little bit. But uh, for now, that seems to be the, the, the group. Yeah, I forgot to mention that Reyna and Stefan uh, were out this window. So that kind of changed some of the selection process over the window. It's probably, you know, challenged a little bit, you know, of, of what was expected, you know, and if everybody was healthy, Reyna was on the fence. You know, I think Stefan was kind of a last minute pull, you know, so there might have been some expectation there of, of a slightly different roster, which might have changed things a little bit closer to the mm-hmm. window. Yeah. yeah. And Reyna is a player who I think was really badly missed this window. The way that he can receive the ball, draw pressure to himself, unlock the defense. It's really special. Um, I don't want to say that he is at this level above our other players who are here, like a McKinney or a Pulisic, but it's just a unique role that he has, whether it's out wide or it's in the midfield. Um, I don't think we have anyone who can better unlock a defense than Gio. And you could see us kind of pounding on the door sometimes this window. So it's totally fair to reference his absence. Um, what was your take and, on Ferreira starting up top? Yeah, I think that was the only big question mark about this lineup. And not because Jesus Ferreira is a bad player or not because he doesn't have a skill set that can work in these games. Um, I think Ferreira is talented. But Ricardo Pepe has been the guy who's been scoring goals and creating assists in World Cup qualifying so far. You know, only about was it less than six months ago, I think we were battling for Mexico, sorry, with Mexico for Pepe's services. It was this huge question of whether he would choose us or L3. So fantastic that he joined us, put in some really strong performances. And so it doesn't make sense that suddenly Greg has said, okay, we have this guy who also is playing weekly in the Bundesliga after making this January transfer. And we're just going to sit him down on the bench and we're going to start Jesus Ferreira, who again is two, if not three months out of his club season. Yeah, my assumption when Ferrer started is that we were saving Pepe for the Canada game. That was mm-hmm. kind of like, I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense a little bit. You know, maybe we take the foot off the, the pedal a little bit, you know, trusting trusting your offense. The other call out for me, I did like Chris Richards starting a lot. I was very nervous about two MLS defenders starting as center backs. Just just the risk, you know, as well as Turner having not played in several months, uh, you know, for to have that entire core so I was glad to see Richards get the start. The other thing that was surprising to me was how deep uh, Musa played. Like we, he, it seemed like we had figured MMA out, right? Like they were just like wreaking havoc, charging forward, incomplete control of the game. Didn't, you know, I noticed in the first half, Musa played significantly deeper. I don't know if he was afraid of a counterattack or, or what it might be. And then in the second half, it seemed like we adjusted and, and pushed forward. Um, but that was something that I just noticed. It, it was like sort of a tinkering with something that didn't need to be tinkered with, in my opinion, at that point, you know, especially against El Salvador, uh, that, that potentially held us back from really unleashing the game more rapidly, which mm-hmm. might have played into the Canada game. Had we been up two or three, we might have seen some earlier subs, might have had some more fresh legs in Canada. Just, just, just kind of a call out, you know, that was something I noticed. Yeah, and it's interesting to see the eights have been pushed wide quite a bit as well. You'll see Weston McKennie and Eunice Musa receiving the ball almost on the touchline and they're going to create, it seems like the plan of attack is almost always to build out wide and then to have that final ball come into the center, whether it's from a fullback sending it across or whether it's a cutback or whether it's one of those midfielders like McKinney or Musa trying to combine and actually play their way through or dribble through and then set up the nine. But um, it has been interesting. There, that was actually a change in the Honduras game where we saw them more central. 
um, Carlin Carpenter put out a nice visual for that, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. We did create a good amount in the El Salvador game. It might've actually been our best performance of the window from that standpoint. The XG was 2.98 to 0.2, which speaks to kind of a dominating performance, yeah. but we did fail to put away a couple of those chances. And that goes back to Ferreira, who did a lot of other very helpful things in the buildup. And he did, he got the assist on Jedi's goal as well. Yeah. And that was the first striker to start a game and win a game uh, outside of Pepe. That, that, that's mm-hmm. the only one uh, so far in World Cup qualifying. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy to see Pepe stick around and continue to be an option, but I do feel more confident with Pepe as that scorer, the finisher in the box. Um, so again, it's not, it's not a lack of ability with Ferreira. And I think it goes back to Pepe as well. You know, if you say, I want Ferreira because of his combination, his ability to drop in, receive the ball cleanly, make one touch combinations and send other players on. That's great. Pepe does those things. He does them very well. So I don't understand the trade-off because you're saying, okay, we have this player who's going to combine and connect, but then Pepe is the one who is very likely to get on the end of chances and actually put them in the net. That is his specialty. And for a team that has really struggled to score goals, it does make sense to continue to put trust in him. Hopefully we'll see, we'll see Pepe continue to pick up his club play with Augsburg here in the spring. And then that's how we, that's what we're looking at going into the March window. Yeah. And I saw that you talked about, and I kind of followed as well. Like we have had four multi-goal games or maybe five, five and in four flurries of those Pepe's been involved in four out of the five, like no other striker has been able to be on a part of a multi-goal half or, or full game, which I think is, is pretty distinctive, regardless of what you think around them through, what is it like 10 games now, you know, we're, we're, we're struggling to, to find beyond maybe knocking one away. Um, so just, just kind of a call out there with, with the variety of, of strikers that we've seen. Mm-hmm. All right. So my we, only other okay. real takeaway in this game was looking at the subs. I think Luca De La Torre would have been a nice option to see in this game. Again, as we were just kind of struggling to open them up and we were creating chances, but couldn't get that final pass or final ball to connect. So he's a guy I'd like to see come on, but um, we saw him and what he can do against Honduras. Yeah. MMA ended up having to go 90. I think, I think there was a late sub. I don't know if that was just assuring to put the game away that, you know, he didn't want to mess with any chemistry and, you know, it was only a one nil lead. And so trying to make sure uh, to put the game away, but you know, that, that could have impacted uh, legs for Canada. So speaking of uh, you want to move into the uh, Canada game. Let's get into the doldrums. So I want to put this out here, both Burhalter and many fans. Um, I've seen fans say that was the most dominant performance uh, as well as, um, as, as supporting Burhalter's claim that, that they dominated the game. Obviously you got lit up by everyone from Stephen A. Smith to, you know, European football uh, analysts, uh, you know, Twelman uh, struggled to keep back a smile as, as he was questioned about it. You know, what's, what's your take, overall from the Canada game from that perspective from the from the domination you know what what's your overall take of, of how we perform from that lens I think Greg's comments after the game showed a lack of understanding of Canada's game plan because he didn't just say that they dominated the game although he did say that he also said that Canada couldn't handle their physicality and that they were causing a ton of problems for Canada and those things just are not true if you assumed that Canada wanted to come out, possess the ball, play pretty soccer, 
and dominate the ball, then yeah, you could say, wow, yeah, the US really kept them from doing that, but that's not what they set out to do in any way. They came to sit back, to uh, be compact, to prevent the US from creating chances and saying, you're gonna have to come and beat us with the ball. And when you lose it, we're gonna counter because transition defense is your weakness. And they accomplished that plan perfectly. Yeah, I mean, they were missing several key players. Like they, they wouldn't have done it anyway, uh, but missing a, a guy like Alfonso Davies, like having that, you know, dangerous player, you know, clearly they were anticipating it and then getting the early goal, you know, that just played right into their hands uh, to be able to give up the ball, give up possession. We weren't really threatening as far as inside the box, getting shots on goal, you know, possession, a little bit of pressure on the wings, which they expected and, and sort of fed, I felt like fed, fed to us. I mean, Wea, you know, was pushed off to the end line time and time again, like, they just were giving him the end line, but but nothing in between. Yeah, and we did outshoot them 13 to 8, but Canada won the XG battle 1.09 to 0.87. And that goes back to the questions about a dominant performance. Yeah. Um, I actually saw a tweet from CONCACAF Edgar saying that on Greg's rewatch of the game, Greg said, I realized Canada was sitting in a low block and that made it difficult for us. And that's crazy to me that you don't make that type of recognition and adjustment in the game to be able to say, of course, they're sitting in a low block. They're wanting us to come at them. And that's their, that's their game. Like that, that shouldn't have been a surprise coming into the game and, and adjustments at halftime. And then to have to kind of make that comment to rewatch, I'm, I'm hoping it was a misquote or he just fumbled mm-hmm, his words, mm-hmm. um, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt a little bit. Cause I mean, he, you know, clear, clearly he, he came in with an intention uh, of, of breaking down a low block, I think, um, but just unsuccessful in doing it, in my opinion. You know, many people were saying execution. You know, there's definitely some opportunities uh, missed, but I felt like we played into Canada's hands. I don't know if you saw anything different. Yeah, we did play into their hands. And so backing up a little bit, I think, again, we had a relatively strong lineup going into this game. I didn't have any big complaints other than a question mark over Jesse Zardes, again, stepping into the nine role. But I don't think Zardes was the problem in this game. I think Pepe is a slight upgrade and he maybe helps us a little bit. And in a game where margins are so narrow, maybe that does make, end up making the difference. But ultimately it's about what the team is doing with the ball and not being crisp enough, not moving it fast enough, not really making their defense do enough or create openings and chances for, for our players to get good shots off. And if you don't do those things, it doesn't matter if it's Zardes or Pepe at the nine. And I think, That's the ultimate frustration when you look at this team, because I don't want to disrespect Canada in any way. They are right now a better team than the U.S. is. But the talent that they have available is not close to the talent the U.S. has. And that's really what gets the fans going. You know, we critique it because we have this vision of how good the team can be and how well it can play and the things it can accomplish and reaching new heights because of the new heights that our players have reached with their club teams already and the level they're playing of players like Christian Pulisic and Tyler Adams scoring goals in the Champions League and having impact performances. So that's the frustrating piece to see these players who are accomplishing really good things. And they do have ups and downs in form. But when they come together to the national team to be so easily um, stymied by a team that is obviously less talented and obviously wants to play that way, that's the frustration. I, I challenge a little bit of that Zardes over Pepe because Zardes did almost nothing. And, and it's hard to believe that somebody couldn't have made a change in that. And I felt like we changed a little bit uh, once Pepe came in. We didn't have Wea, so we didn't have that spark. You know, he couldn't get in because of his vaccine status. 
people were upset about that. I, I would assume it was game plan that there was, you know, the hope uh, that they get way in, but, you know, clearly they didn't push them uh, to get a second shot. So, um, and they said they had thought through and planned uh, for the Canada game to, to cross the border. So I would assume they plan not to play way in that game. Um, we started MMA again. Um, that hasn't gone well now twice, back to back games, you know, uh, with a three day rest. I don't know if that's an issue. I don't know if that's a, that's a just motor issue or, um, you know, short-term issue. It did not look to me that we, we, we looked as strong in that second game uh, for two windows in a row. And the other thing that, that kind of bothered me in that game, I think it was Adams uh, that went down and I didn't see anybody warming up at that point. You know, it, it felt like, you know, just like the first Canada game, like Greg, Greg thought that we were dictating exactly and thought the goal was just going to come. And that, that gives me pause and concern because that's the second time we played Canada and the second time, at least nobody was warming up at that point. Adams goes down all of a sudden, you know, he throws three subs, you know, cold uh, into the wolves, you know, the, the, the lack of recognition of, of where a situation is um, that again is, is something that kind of gives me sort of a red flag, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been a concern from early on in Greg's tenure and he's addressed it a little bit, you know, we look back to the Honduras game in September when Greg did make several changes at halftime and we saw the game go a really different direction. Now you can say that was because the car was on its way to a cliff and you can't give a guy credit for just slamming on the brakes. But um, I do think Greg's ability to recognize what's happening in game and then be able to make a tactical adjustment or bring on a different skill set, or even just bring on a a fresh player who's going to open things up. That has been a question mark for him. Yeah, and there's been some impact subs, right? Christian coming into the Mexico game scored immediately. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's been a couple of other impact subs um, that have scored goals. Uh, you mentioned um, that was the Honduras game. Was that the first one? Yeah. And then, you know, there's been a couple. Um, so we've seen mixed bag throughout, but definitely, you know, some some concerns early on. So yeah. speaking of Honduras, oh, go ahead. Yeah. We do seem, whatever our plan is at the beginning of a game, we do seem to generally stick with it at least 60 minutes, if not 70 into a game before there really becomes this warning sign or an alarm of, Oh, something is going to have to be different for us to get a result or for us to get a goal. Yeah. Yeah. So Honduras, uh, what was it? Three degrees, you know, at kickoff time, we've seen two Honduran players uh, potentially hospitalized for uh, hypothermia. I looked into it today. I haven't gotten any updates on any of the players. Uh, Hopefully they're, they're doing well. I know a lot of the U.S. players uh, said that they don't want to do that again. You know, what was your take mm-hmm. on that and, you know, the result, right? 3 nothing win for U.S. A good result, right? And that's what U.S. soccer was the most concerned about ultimately was that they wanted to try to use every possible factor to their advantage to get those three points and to move on and to be closer to the World Cup. And I can't fault them for that mindset, but I strongly disagree that playing Honduras at home that the cold or that bad conditions are any kind of advantage. Um, Travel time and trying to limit the travel and the miles on the players was brought up as a concern. And that's reasonable. I think it's a two hour flight from Hamilton, Ontario to Minnesota. You could get to Charlotte, North Carolina in the same distance and the guys are closer to being back in Europe. So I, I like to see us generally playing games throughout the country. So far we've missed the West coast. We've missed the East Coast um, with all our qualifying games. And that's a shame that more people haven't had access because we're doing so much in the Midwest. And I live in Indiana. I'm, you know, it's all close to me. Um, I'm not, I don't have an ax to grind about it, but it is the national team and, and you'd like to see that more. So now that because they have had 
three game windows, it makes that extra travel tougher. But in general, when we are at home and when we have a massive talent advantage, we should be scheduling games where the best conditions possible are that will allow us to play the best, have the cleanest touch, allow players like Christian Pulisic, Serginho Des, and the MMA midfield, Tim Weah, all of these players to be able to do the magic that they do without having to also have opponents dealing with hypothermia. Yeah. Hard, hard to argue with the results, though. I mean, 3-0, you know, uh, I think several players mentioned the Hondurans were very uncomfortable, seemed like they were done with the game pretty quickly early on, put the game away. I mean, to, to, to U.S. soccer's credit, uh, you know, they, they got the job done and it, it clearly impacted, uh, I, you know, it seemed like the coach didn't even want to be there <laughs> or the referee. I commented at halftime. I said, it's going to be a one minute half uh, of extra time in each half. Cause it got, I think it was a Jamaican referee. <laughs> like he does not want to be there for, you know, five extra minutes of, of a three nil, uh, you know, loss or, or game. So, I really enjoyed that referee, by the way, Ocean Nation. Yeah. I was rewatching and there was a moment where, a Honduran player put his hand kind of on his hip and uh, Oshane Nation just takes his arm and whips it down and, and stares at the player. And it's just, I just really enjoyed the, the drama. There was one point where I think it took him 10 seconds or more to be able to get a yellow card out of his pocket. And he was just struggling and struggling. And this whole conversation is going on. By the time he's actually raised the card, I think that the conversation was almost over. <laughs> Yeah, I, I saw a lot of people in the there. NFL uh, clamoring. They were saying they wanted the ref uh, for the NFL games, that, that, that he was fun. He was enjoyable. Yeah, so overall, I mean, 3-0 win, you know, hard, hard to complain at that. I mean, I think we, we, we dictated the game, got Pulisic in there, you know, hopefully get a confidence boost for him. I think, you know, seeing him score a goal was a good thing. You know, uh, the Hondurans did not seem like they were sort of given the nasty – end of a CONCACAF game, you know, fouls, it seemed like fairly clean. And, and so it was a good opportunity to get Pulisic and, and a couple of them, uh, some opportunities to, to knock one in. Yeah, good to see Pulisic on the score sheet. That was one of the big takeaways. I would have loved to see Pepe get a goal as well. Um, we did create an okay amount. We, we had 2.01 XG to 0.05 for Honduras. That's basically no chance of scoring. And we know that XG comes from shots. Um, I don't know how much of ours came from set pieces. You know, Zimmerman's chance is from four, six yards out. Um, Pulisic's shot is also very close range. McKenney's header, those are all very high percentage looks. So even if we're creating from set pieces, at least we're getting the ball into good areas. But you'd like to see this team be able to score from the run of play. What was the .05? Is that the hit that went over the bar? <laughs> That's the only time I remember Matt Turner doing absolutely anything in the entire I can't game. remember a shot. Yeah. And maybe they give us 0.05 from an almost breakaway or something. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's a courtesy 0.05. Right. 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 Yeah. So ultimately, ultimately the plan worked of playing in Minnesota and getting the three points and demoralizing the opponent. I just have no way to believe that that result is any better than it would have been if we play in North Carolina or in Tennessee or in somewhere that's more temperate. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, so we're, we're up four points, you know, from from Panama uh, with three games left and we get to play Panama at home, you know, kind of looking ahead, um, you know, where what are you thinking? What's what's on your mind over these next uh, three games? Yeah, we we have to beat Panama at home. You know, we can't expect to go to a World Cup qualifier if we can't beat a team like Panama. And I think we'll need one other result to fall our way. 
whether that's picking up a point in Mexico or in Costa Rica or needing Panama to drop a point in one of their other two games. So um, we do still control our own destiny. That is a really a low bar of expectation. We should always be controlling our own destiny in CONCACAF. So it's, it's a bummer when, when the World Cup qualifying calendar was released, there were a lot of eyes that went to this last window away at Mexico, away at Costa Rica. And the conversation was, we need to wrap things up before that last window. We need to not wait and have to rely on things going just right at the final second, because that hosed us last time around, that hosed us at Coupa. So um, there will be nerves, right? Nobody can quite, can quite um, settle down until our tickets are, are sealed. Yeah, we've beaten Mexico three times in the last year, all at home, though. Uh, this is the first time most of this group, if not all, is going to Azteca. Uh, actually, it's everybody, right? Unless Yedlin, you know. Uh, Acosta played well. That's right. Okay. Last time around. Yep. Mm-hmm. I think Yedlin and Pulisic as well. Pulisic, yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So just Got a handful it. of guys, though. I mean, most of this roster will be experiencing away to Mexico for the very first time. Some of them for the first time playing Mexico, you know, not everybody was there and healthy, you know, this summer for, for either of those tournament games, uh, away to Costa Rica, uh, who has been on fire lately and, and only one point behind Panama and, you know, might end up surpassing them in this, you know, kind of keep one eye on them as well. Uh, in that window, we might need to get a result, uh, depending on how things play out, um, with them. So, you know, another, challenging, uh, you know, group of veterans, um, you know, it's going to be an interesting window for sure. It will. I almost see our team enjoying Azteca more than they would enjoy the trip to Costa Rica. We've seen them thrive on the big stage. We saw the drama of Nations League and Gold Cup where there was a significant fan group for El Tri there. And, you know, the drama of the bottles being thrown in the field and Christian Pulisic shing the crowd. So I think they enjoy that part of it, the big stage. I think that is almost more enjoyable than the trip to Costa Rica, where it's just going to be not that, not as big of a stage and not that clash of Titans or clash of giants that you see or that you feel with Mexico. Yeah. And, and Mexico struggled a bit, right? I mean, they're, they're behind us right now. Um, you know, they've had their own challenges uh, on their side. They've lost three to us in a row. They're not going to be happy going into that game. Pressure's on in front of their fan base to, to shut the American fans up, you know, mm. for, for over a year of, of, of trash talking. And they have an opportunity to, to do some damage, you know, to, to us in our, in our quest to, to qualify again. So um, it's going to be a very, very interesting game. Um, we talked a little bit about Pepe, um, but just uh, kind of before going into that, you know, what, what's your takeaway, you know, he didn't score in, in a start. He didn't score as a sub, you know, hasn't scored since October. Uh, you know, there's some some noise around that. You know, he hasn't scored yet in Germany. Any thoughts that way on on Pepe and why why he needs to play, or you know, what we need to watch for this next window? Yeah, I have little doubt that he will score soon in Germany. Um, when evaluating players, it's helpful to be able to look at their skill set rather than just the recent results. And it's true, Pepe scored a lot um, early on in those first USMNT caps in the fall, and he hasn't scored recently. And he hasn't gotten great chances or great services, or great service. I don't know of a glaring miss that he's had. He had that uh, overhead, it was an overhead kick. It was a twisting midair 
attempt in the Honduras game that was I think December he maybe missed one in the in the friendly with Bosnia I think yeah that's, the only one I that's true yeah. that's true December he had one he should have finished you expect him to put that away um and he did put it in the net once for Augsburg that was ruled offside I don't want to count that in his favor but it was good to at least see the ball leave his feet and ripple the net right um, right but just looking at his skill set we have some other finishers so we have Josh Sargent Daryl DK Jordan Peefock. I don't really view Jesus Ferreira as a finisher. Um, Matthew Hoppy could be in that category. He's not in the best form right now either. We'd like to see him um, do a little bit more. But um, just looking at Pepe's skills, he has the ability to drop in and hold up the play to combine with his teammates. He makes runs into the box, which is something we really need. Often when it's a Ferreira-style player, we don't get those runs into the box and we don't have that target to aim crosses at. So... To me, Pepe is the total package. Um, I agree he's not in the best form of his life right now, but I think often getting a couple of games and getting more confidence against CONCACAF-level opponents can really help with that. To me, it's a shame to see Greg go a different direction because Pepe leaves this window with less confidence, I think you have to say, than if he gets the start against El Salvador or at least one of the two games between El Salvador and Canada as opposed to coming in after playing in the Bundesliga, starting in the Bundesliga and saying, no, we're going to sit you on the bench and we're going to play a couple of MLS players, including your former club teammate who haven't been on the field in months. Yeah, and I, I don't think Zardes shoulders the blame, but we haven't won a game with him starting. Uh, you know, I think we have one tie and two losses, or it might even be just the two losses where he started. Mm-hmm. I think those are the only two games. He's, he started in both losses, hasn't scored a World Cup qualifying um, I think he has one goal for us in, in all of his time with us. He's supposed to be that veteran calming presence. I don't like to pick on a guy. He seems like a great guy, you know, uh, for nothing but good things off the field. But to me, um, to bring two MLS players, neither of them, you know, scoring, at least uh, Ferreira impacted the game with the assist, you know, off the header. Um, you know, for me to, to look at a PFOC, even a Hoppy, um, you know, you got to bring somebody that's informed the scoring goals that you can look down the bench and be like, hey, 10 minutes left, let's get you in the game, you know, just, just not going in off a set piece, not going to, you know, get mm-hmm. lucky, poke one in. Um, that seems to me like, like a big opportunity for, for a PFOC or someone like that to take Zardes' place in this last window. And this might be a good chance for me to get on my Josh Sargent soapbox as well. Um, you know, Sargent's brace happened, I think, just minutes after the roster was released. And no one was predicting that. It's not as though Greg was supposed to look into a crystal ball and see Josh is going to have a crazy scorpion kick goal. Let's go ahead and call him up. But when you look at his skill set, again, Sargent does a lot of the same things Ferreira does. He holds up well he drops into the midfield well, connects with his teammates. Um, he's pretty ball secure, able to keep defenders wrong footed. Um, and then his actual finishing ability, if he can get in the box and get on the end of good service, it's not bad. He is not in good form as far as finishing goals or he wasn't leading up to the window. But that's a helpful skill set and one that is good, especially when you're trying to break a team down. You know, in that Canada game, being able to have a type of striker who can um, receive the ball, turn, hold off a defender, and then play in an on-rushing winger or fullback, that's really a, a helpful skill set. So I was I was um, disappointed not to see Sargent in camp, even though the goals came after the roster. Yeah, and he was playing from the wing. It was Watford, I think, who's who's mm-hmm. in a relegation battle right now in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. So I'll be curious to see if he can keep it up. And then what happens with Norwich? You know, are they gonna gonna keep him out on the wing? You know, does does he stay there and play that? I know 
Uh, Greg tested that in, in the first half of Honduras. It went pretty horribly wrong mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in that game. You know, do, do you see him suddenly shifting and, and being strong presence in the nine, or, or could we run into the same problems we have with Ferreira and, and others, not Pepe, um, mm-hmm. struggling to find, find the back uh, of the net. I'll be curious to see if he gets called in, you know, what Greg would do with him. And it's good to have some of that positional flexibility. I agree. Sargent was really bad in that first half in Honduras when he was played out wide. And I don't know if that's because it's the first time he'd done it for the national team. Um, I don't want to defend it though. It was bad. Um, But um, Sargent now having been out on the wing, um, it's interesting because we have this flexibility with him, Matthew Hoppe, Nico Giochini. Those are some guys who can offer inside and out. We know Tim Weya as well, although it, it feels crazy to move him off the wing with how productive he's been and how, how he's excelled on the wing, but it doesn't hurt to bring a player like a Sergeant or a Hoppy. If, if his competition is Paul Areola or Jordan Morris, um, that they do have things they can offer the team. Yeah, no, I hear you. Well, we're, we're in second place, you know, um, we've got a huge marquee win over Mexico, uh, two trophies against Mexico, um, you know, there's, there's yet, there's still sort of these mixed feelings about Greg Berhalter. You know, there's these staunch defenders that say, you know, look, we're in second, uh, you know, staunch uh, defense, you know, he's still figuring out the attack, but he's gotten most of the rosters right as far as starting 11 on the big games. Uh, you know, he's got us, you know, potentially one win away uh, from, from making the world cup after not qualifying, you know, where, where does the conversation of where Burhalter ranks amongst, you know, greatest coaches for us to, you know, he shouldn't be the coach in March, you know, where, how do, how do people reconcile that taking the body of work that he has to this point with three games away, potentially one win away uh, from taking us to, to the world cup, which we are eight years uh, displaced from, from being a part of. Yeah. I think that, every fan's expectations are going to be different and their expectations are going to drive how they feel about this conversation. Um, there will be people who come in and say exactly like you did. We missed the world cup last time. We can't be expecting things to go from that low point to sudden high points. And it's true that if we qualify that in a vacuum, that is, that is better. That is an improvement to go to the world cup instead of not going, not going to argue with that at all. But we also didn't have, Weston McKinney and Tim Weah and Tyler Adams and Serginho Dest and all of these emerging talents. Gio Reyna, you know, Reyna has not been a feature in qualifying, so I can't use him as an example too much. But the group that we have, um, it's so such a higher level than the group that was struggling through qualifying in 2016, 2017. Um, the defensive solidity, I think, is a great point. Um, just looking at some numbers. We've only allowed seven goals in 11 games in the Ocho. That's really strong. Yeah. In the 10 games of the Hex last cycle, we allowed 13. Um, so it's good to see the defense is improving. Um, the problem really comes with the offense and the chance creation. So we have 16 goals in 11 games in the Ocho. And in the Hex, in 10 games, we had 17 goals. So we scored a little bit more and a little bit less. And it's important to point out with the Hex as well, we were only playing against the top six teams in CONCACAF and that group has enlarged and we've added the seventh and eighth teams, which you would think those would be great chances to rack up goals. And it hasn't happened. You know, I remember some high scoring games at home versus Honduras is what I remember. 
And I'm trying to remember a couple of the others in the last cycle where Clint Dempsey went off and Jeff Cameron and Christian Pulisic. So even under that team, that team under Bruce Arena, it was actually firing more offensively than this much more talented team is under Burkhalter. And so I think going back to the performances, that's the big question is can he or will he be able to bring the team together in a tactical plan that sets them up to succeed, to create chances, to maximize their individual abilities? We've struggled to produce a goal scoring nine, you know, outside of Pepe, um, you know, we, we've struggled in that area. You mentioned Reyna, Christian Pulisic has missed a window. Uh, he has not been himself, in my opinion, you know, with, with some, some of his club situation. Wea has missed time. I think Brendan Aronson's the only one uh, that's been consistently healthy, you know, amongst that group, you know, that we've pretty much relied on for goal scoring. Do you give any sort of grace there from that perspective? Like the continuity in attack has been tough to build uh, based off of injuries and, and kind of, you know, out of form or, you know, off the field issues. Eunice Musa was not committed uh, to the U.S. at the start of this. And, and I thought, you know, to Greg's credit, he committed. Uh, Sergio Des committed. You know, we might not have those players in our pool uh, had it not been for Greg and the way he brought it along. We can only speculate whether Musa was ready, you know, to commit. You know, we have to kind of trust Greg, I guess, at this point, you know, because of the end result of getting him. Pepe as well. You know, we don't have those guys in our arsenal if it isn't a good locker room, a good team situation, trust in the coach. Um, so those are some key key pieces that you mentioned that might not even have been an option and the discontinuity in the attack. Any thoughts that way, you know, from from mm -hmm. that lens for Greg? Yeah, I think those are two of Greg's strengths. I think the dual national recruiting piece and the locker room chemistry cohesion piece, I think those are two of his strengths. Um, I do think he deserves credit for recruiting Yunus Musa, 100%. We know that Nico Estevez, who was Greg's assistant, was the one who made contact and um, who bridged that gap initially, but I don't want to take that away from Greg. I think because of him and through Greg, we have this fantastic young, talented midfielder. I think Serginho Dest is probably in the program with or without Greg. Um, his main connection came through his exposure in the youth national team program. And Dest has spoken about that, about how the U.S. believed in him at a time when the Netherlands did not believe in him and did not rate him. And that was really important for him. Um, and I think with Pepe, it's kind of similar to Dest, not so much with the youth national team program, but that kind of Berhalter Lusa, did. Lusa, yeah. Um, oh, well, with Pepe. Oh, I think sorry. It's, yeah, yeah. No, it's okay. I think it's similar where Greg kind of did what any coach would do as far as communication and bringing him into the team at the right time. Um, and so I guess Greg deserves some credit for that, but I don't think it's you know, if you take Greg out and put in a replacement level manager, I, I don't expect that replacement level manager to somehow flub and we lose Pepe either. Fair, fair. Yeah. How about, how about the Weston McKinney situation? I feel like he handled that just about perfectly. You know, I, I mean, the way at least Weston has responded and how he's handled it, how the team has handled it. The other thing is with Brooks, I haven't heard anybody really complain from the team about Brooks being left off, which I thought was kind of curious. Like I would have thought we would have might've heard some rumblings of that, you know, any thoughts that way about controlling the locker room in those two situations? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Without knowing the details or the extent of McKinney's situation, I don't I have no problem with how Greg handled that. And like you said, look at where McKinney is now. He's in great form, both for club and for country. So no problems there. I would be shocked to hear a player in the national team 
reference someone who has been left out like a John Brooks, because I think that would come across as a direct criticism of the manager that, you know, if Tyler Adams or if, um, you know, a Bundesliga player says, you know, I played against John Brooks last week with my club and he's really good. And I wish he was here. Not that they would state it that strongly, but I think, I think it would be headline news to hear anyone make that type of claim, but to go a little bit back more on the uh, locker room, like you're talking about, I do think that there is generally a healthy, vibrant locker room under Greg. I think he's generally done a good job uh, managing players. I think that also comes and goes with results and performances. You know, Christian Pulisic looks like he has the weight of the world on his shoulders right now. He looks like a player who's just pushing and pushing and just can't quite find what he needs to unlock a good performance. Um, So, and then there's the other question about how players feel about the Paul Ariolas and the Sebastian Legettes and the MLS players who have had some moments with the national team to stand on, but seem to have received significantly more chances than others who offer similar, if not better, skill sets. Um, and it seems like those players are well liked. You know, I don't see anyone giving Paul Ariola the cold shoulder, um, or I don't see the interactions people have with Sebastian Legette, but I do wonder. And I, I think that a, another manager could foster an even better locker room dynamic by basing call-ups and rosters more on club performances and national team performances rather than their personal preferences or their personal relationship with the player. I think one of the ways that Greg manages the locker room is that he is slow to um, drop a player. You know, we saw that with, with Will Trapp. We saw it with Jackson Ewell. We're seeing it with Sebastian Legette now where even though Legette's not playing, he's in consecutive camps, he continues to be part of the group. And I think Greg values that continuity and even, and even values Greg's own relationship with Legette that he feels like maybe he'd be cutting him off um, and that would be a bad thing. So I do think that you could have an even healthier dynamic if you say, you know, Sebastian, you've done some good things for the national team right now. I think maybe Alex Mendez offers more to the team than you do you know, show me I'm wrong. Show me I'm wrong. I'll bring you back in the next window. I don't see how that makes things worse. I think that actually adds a level of energy and optimism and youth to the group. Yeah. It also gives you depth, right? You know, if legit were to get injured, you know, who, who do you go to, uh, you know, look at how long it's taken to bring Luca along because of even all these friendlies, you know, over the last two years um, that legit has kind of owned that space, you know, getting flown over to Europe during COVID, you know, there was ample opportunity to, to field a couple of guys, feel them out, get some integration so that now it wouldn't be brand new concept. Yeah. Those are ultimately my two greatest critiques of Verhalter are one, the inability to field or to set up an attack that really uses the skills of its players the best. And that creates chances and that scores goals the way that we know the players are capable of that's number one. And I think number two is the process of building the team, the process of when, how do you call up certain players? How do you explore the pool? How do you divvy up chances and create competition for the roster spots? I think those are the two that really stand out to me as ways where it seems like even if we brought in a manager who was just coming in cold and had very little time coming into the March window, I think that that manager would have a pretty good chance to improve on Burhalter in those things immediately, both in the offensive setup, which really is a struggle right now, 
and in that aspect of being able to evaluate players and not have to continue to call in the same faces over and over again, regardless of past performance. We, we've talked a little bit, you know, the U.S. not making the last one in the bar, but, you know, they, they sort of say, right, win your home games, you know, steal points on the road. Assuming we beat Panama, you know, we call the, the Canada draw and the Honduras, you know, flipped, you know, where, where he's basically at par, you know, how, what are the realistic standards for, for a U.S. Uh, national coach? Knowing that it's not a prestigious job, you know, Marsh and others, you know, are getting, you know, some pretty good claims across in Europe. I don't know the, how the pay compares to MLS. I would imagine MLS is, is, is climbing, uh, you know, for some of the top coaches uh, in the league. It's not for, for the, the coaching opportunity. It's not necessarily a prestigious role. You're coming in with high expectation of players, low uh, results from history. You know, what's a, what's a realistic standard to hold the coach in this current window uh, to? That's a fantastic question. And I think it's difficult sometimes to frame things in a way where you say, look at this team. It's failing to unlock defenses. It's failing to create chances. It's failing to score goals against opposition that has significantly less talent based on those things. Now this manager should be fired. That seems like a jump maybe. Um, I think it's helpful to flip it the other way as well though, and say, look at this team with all those things I just said, how much confidence do you have that this manager is going to perform better or to get the team to perform better in the world cup this winter than any other replacement level manager? How do we evaluate his known strengths and his known weaknesses versus what we would consider like a replacement level? Um, and looking at some of the weaknesses of this team, like I said, I do, I do think it's fair to say that we could bring in almost anyone who would be interested. Um, I don't want to say almost anyone because I'm just inviting Bruce Arena back in the room. Um, let's please not do that. Um, but that there would be players or, or coaches interested in coming in who could offer an advantage. And there are a lot of dynamics that are really unique based on the timing right now. We are still in the middle of World Cup qualifying. We are hosting the World Cup in five years and four years. It's coming up the one after here. And like you said, it's not a job where I think we're luring in Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, but we have had interest registered from names like Marcelo Bielsa, and Julian Lopetegui. <laughs> I think I just I think I just butchered the name of the Sevilla manager, but he has expressed interest in this U.S. job. So, if there's interest from managers of that caliber, I think it's safe to say that there are probably others who are also interested who we don't see stories about. Um, it's a tricky, yeah, it's just a tricky conversation of um, how do we evaluate who the best possible options are, and then would any manager that's hired now want the guarantee of the 2026 World Cup cycle at home? Yeah. Because I think that seems likely. And what about this? You know, we're, we're in second place. Let's assume we hold second or better. You know, I don't think we'll get, you know, past Canada, but, you know, hold second. How would you discuss with that new manager what the expectations were? You know, if he were to look at Greg's record and re Greg finishes in second and you're, you're firing him, you know, how, how would he be evaluated if he were to take over from Greg? You know, how would you how would you measure him in a, in a, yeah. in a fair way that he could say, OK, I understand the expectations and, and this is a good job to walk into? Yeah, I think that you would just have to talk about performances. You know, you could you could look back at some of the results that Greg's gotten over this past year, whether that's Nations League, 
whether that's Gold Cup and even the, the results here in World Cup qualifying and say, there have been some good results um, with our last manager, but there was a consistent failure to get a performance that was a level that was realistic for the players and the talent that we have available. Um, we've seen one really, really special performance from this team, which was at home against Mexico. Um, that performance, I think, is really the one that Greg could kind of hang his hat on and say, look at us, we dominated against Mexico. We dominated against this team who for the longest time has been our nemesis in the region. And I think a little bit of shine comes off that game because of the way that Mexico has imploded since then, but it's still a really good performance. The issue is that even though we did grind out wins in Nations League and grind out a win in the Gold Cup final against Mexico, and the defense has been relatively solid, that there has been a failure to reach that next level and to have a cohesive attacking performance. And again, not one where we're scoring a first minute goal and where we're um, reaching insane levels, but where we see the talent of the players shine through at a similar level to what we're seeing them do with their clubs on a weekly basis. If you were to pull him, would you do it now before this window? Would you wait till after the window and give that new coach only really the summer, you know, um, what do we have going on this summer? Gold Cup or Na- Nations, Nations League, League this Sorry. summer? Yeah. Um, and then maybe a handful of friendlies before, uh, before the Cup. I think it would be a conversation with the managerial candidate to see, um, does he want it? Does he want this last window with all the pressure? Um, but I think if he wanted it, I would go ahead. And again, this is assuming that it's a manager who could come in at a relatively decent level and that I'm not just hiring Joe Schmo off the street, but that it would be whatever the realistic level is for someone who's interested and available in this US job. Um, the, I'd ask you a question back almost of if we fire Greg Berhalter today and we bring in a replacement level manager, again, whatever that means, what are our great losses? Um, because one helpful comparison I've heard from Greg Velasquez on the Scuffed podcast is if we just rolled the ball out there and said, all right, guys, go get them. How would we be worse than the tactics that we are playing now where we do have a pretty clear tactical identity of dominating the ball, of um, having a lot of passing and of trying to play down the wings and create these chances from wide and being relatively solid defensively. But if we just took the players we have and lined them up and said, go play soccer, would, would there not be some advantages to what they would do on their own almost? So what do you think about that? It's, it's a, I mean, it's a good question. I would, I would have to, I would, I would probably lean on the players in that situation, you know, not knowing deep dynamics of that. I think there'd be big questions in the locker room. Uh, I think there'd probably be some mistrust, you know, cause there probably are some split folks in the locker room. You know, we heard Weston defending uh, their tactics and like, Hey, when we execute correctly, you know, I believe in this, I believe in the system that we're trying to do. Um, but as far as execution, I, I, I couldn't speak to that, like how the players would react to that. Um, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, Matt Turner is not all of a sudden going to start, you know, <laughs> fumbling the ball. If you take, take the coach out of there, you know, they have a pretty set system. Obviously he's talking a fair amount during the game, but you know, I've seen a fair amount of eye rolling as well uh, you know, in response to, to, to his in-game coaching i don't think he is um adept at at making in-game decisions so you know i think that can only 
improve. Uh, you know, I just haven't seen it. I've seen him say make halftime adjustments uh, on mm-hmm. occasion. Um, and, and I think you called out one or two of those, but, but not consistently seeing in-game decisions uh, that have adjusted the game to the positive. So it's a good question. I don't know if I have a good answer for it other than I, I, I don't have a ton of confidence that it would impact us in three games, you know, potentially by the World Cup and, and trying to in- integrate new players and things like that with a new manager, trust, chemistry, um, you know, depending on how that coach picks the lineup, you know, it, it would be shocking to a player if they were left off that had been on before. It might be, mm-hmm. you know, some distrust there and, and, and because they don't have the, the longevity or the relationship. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. Yeah. And I should try to say up front too, maybe a little later in the podcast than I should have said, we're trying to frame this, not in the context of what we actually expect us soccer to do. Yeah. There's no expectation that they're going to fire Greg. There's no expectation that they're going to seek a replacement for him or try to find a different manager leading up to this World Cup. The only way I see him losing his job is if we fail to qualify for the World Cup or if we fall to fourth and we have to go through the playoff to qualify. I think there could be questions asked then. But what we're talking about is as an outsider looking in with all of the information and the data that's available to us, what would the best decision be and to try to really go at it that way? Yeah, I'll say this too. Uh, Greg, two years ago, right? He had the inverted right back. He had this whole, you know, he switched to a simpler system because of COVID. He had an all MLS camp. He had an all Europe camp. Uh, even in this World Cup, you know, in, in one window, right? We saw what, you know, we look like uh, what was the first game El Salvador, then Canada, totally different. And then Honduras, two completely different halves. So as far as changing coaches and changing systems, I don't think it would be a shock to the system, even for this group, uh, to see something different in a, in a single window, because we've seen that, right? We've, we've seen uh, three at the back. We've seen uh, him try and, and play around with a couple of different things, even in World Cup qualifying. So from that perspective, I don't think it would be a shock uh, to mm-hmm. the team to have something different. I don't think it would be fair and I don't think any good manager would take this role with such a short window and such a high pressure situation. If it's a legit manager that wants it, they would want a full cycle. They'd want to go dive deep, you know, pick out, handpick their own players and there would be too much pressure after seeing arena get demolished, you know, for 10 months work. I think there would be, you know, concern about taking this group over and, and inheriting a mess of sorts. And mm-hmm. that, from that standpoint, Uh, and then, you know, if something were to happen, you know, miss, miss the window or only have a couple of friendlies and nations league to to get it figured out that they wouldn't be given a fair chance, uh, at the job. But speaking of, you know, who are some, some people that you think would realistically take that should the opportunity, you know, be pitched out to them that would bring value. Yeah. Yeah. Before I get to names, one other piece of the locker room chemistry bit that's coming to mind is that winning games, performing well, and scoring goals are the best possible medicine for any locker room. And I think that there would be a shakeup with any change. Um, And I think there would be a period of players looking for security and looking for stability um, 100%. But I think that um, if we saw any improvement in our possession system, in our chance creation, in our goal scoring, those things could have massive positives for the locker room and for player confidence and player relationships. And that the same could be true with the restoration of a player like John Brooks or with the inclusion of 
a player like Joe Scally, you know, I think about Joe Scally and I think about the positive energy he could bring to this group. You know, a young, hungry teenager, he's moved to Germany, he's excelled in the Bundesliga in his first pro season there. Um, that's a player who has a positive influence on the locker room. He's a guy who pushes you and you, you, you fight against him to compete for a spot. Yeah, and go go back to Canada last year, uh, or you know now a little bit longer. Um, the uh, Nations League game when we lost, you know, and and Pulisic on the bench fuming, you know, obviously fuming. Uh, the locker room after just disjointed, silent. You know, to your point, um, we haven't really faced a ton of adversity as a group. Uh, we've kind of you know we arguably lucked into the second half of Honduras, you know, um, them being gas and, and kind of come back that window, you know, get the big win at Mexico, uh, which kind of, you know, covers uh, some of the pain of, of, of some of these draws and, and things like that. The draw at Jamaica, I mean, it was a wonderful goal. Um, you know, that, that draw, um, we, we got enough results to kind of not really face any controversy as well as obviously the two trophies, um, which is a ton of confidence. So we haven't really seen this team under Greg face a ton of adversity yet. Mm -hmm. And even without facing that adversity, we have seen a fair level of drama in the in the tougher moments of um, even like leaving the field in Canada without um, without like going to the fans. Right. And having that moment that when when the team loses or when things don't go well, there can be actions taken that are immature or that don't. Um, yeah, they just don't, don't honor others in the moment, whether it's the fans or the team, but it's like a, um, just an emotional response of we're going to, we're just going to charge off the field. You know, we're so upset we lost and, and that makes sense. No one likes to lose, but, but yeah, those are, it, it would be good to see improvement in those areas. And like I said, the on-field, the on-field play could have a big positive effect on those dynamics. Yeah. So let's, let's get into some names, you know, if it, okay. if it were, Realistically, you know, uh, U.S. soccer is, is holding to a higher standard and saying, you know, the just qualifying isn't enough. You know, it's first or nothing. <laughs> you know, if you're not first, you're last. Uh, and start start calling some people uh, wanting to see more out of this team. Who, who are our first couple of, uh, of calls for you and how are they going to help? I think that the most realistic candidates, it starts with Jesse Marsh. And Jesse has said over and over again, his ambition is to be at a high level coaching in Europe. And so I don't know if this job appeals to him. I don't know if he's ready or wants to take the US job yet. I think he might rather have it for the 26th cycle, um, or he might rather just try to reach another high level in Europe and be it with a Champions League club. Um, I wonder though, if he might like the opportunity where it's such a short time frame here, he could just have a nine month runway and 10 month runway where he gets to take this talented team, try to see if he can raise its level. His style seems to fit the team relatively well with his emphasis on pressing and athleticism and to be able to showcase himself as a manager on the world cup stage. And again, we're operating under the idea that we would be hiring someone without promising them the 2026 cycle. It's a contract through December and that's it. And that's a tough ask, but I wonder if that might be appealing for Jesse Marsh to say, okay, I'm coming on the heels of this RB Leipzig job that didn't go well. This could be the way to put myself in the shop window to go on to the next job or to say, we're going to perform so well at the world cup that us soccer is going to extend me and give me this next cycle. 
Come, coming off of Leipzig, though, wouldn't you think, you know, he'd be a little hesitant to take a short window? I mean, he got a two-year contract, didn't even get to finish it, you know, like, under a ton of pressure immediately after not getting results or two, uh, moving on. Don't you think uh, he would want to avoid such a high-pressure, high-visibility stint when he would think that he's in the long-term running for either a 26-run or a 30-run, you know, with, with a couple more years at a, at a mid-table, solid – you know, European club, get his experience under and build his team and, and then get a full cycle to get people because that was, you know, a lot of Leipzig, right? Like he had struggles to get everybody up to speed in the way he was trying to use them specifically in attack. Uh, it seemed like that was where they were struggling, um, was kind of figuring that out and, and, and scoring goals. They were underperforming against the mines and, you know, some of the, the lower tier teams, which is what upset fans uh, so mm-hmm. much. I don't see Jesse Marsh shying away from pressure. I think he thrives on pressure. Um, I, I do think it's very possible that either he wants to wait for a full cycle with this team or that he sees a stepping stone in Europe with a club that's more appealing to him right now. I think those two are very real and that they could preclude him from being interested in this job with the short window, like you're describing. Yeah. I mean, Bruce got demolished, you know, Fair or unfair, whatever you want to say, you know, like he's clearly had success with the national team before he's clearly had club success before. And since, you know, I think, I think that alone, I could see some people wanting to shy away from a short stint, you know, uh, mm-hmm. where they probably saw that with Bruce. It was like, Oh, Bruce should have, you know, free reign to do whatever he wants. He's just trying to salvage, you know, Jurgen's error. And then, you know, gets destroyed uh, by the media and fans alike. Mm-hmm. I yeah. Wonder if that it, might it could be. Part. Yeah. yeah. And and I think Jesse's one that I would be very excited to see him take this job. But I do think that it's maybe 50-50 at best that if U.S. soccer gives him that phone call that he accepts. Yeah. Want to move on to some other names? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One that came to mind who has had a very short coaching career, but that has caught eyes in CONCACAF so far is Hugo Perez with El Salvador. He's a former American player. He's had a good name for himself with the U.S., on those teams and he has coached at the youth level before for the u.s and we think there's been some bad blood between u.s soccer and hugo um, there's been reports about him being scolded for speaking spanish with players during camps and that kind of falls under a larger umbrella of problems with the latino community that u.s soccer has had which desperately need to be addressed and righted i think there have been some positive signs on that front but more still needs to be done but Hugo has done relatively well with this El Salvador team. Their results have not been good. They're close to the bottom of the table in the Ocho, but the talent available to them is also very low. And he has them playing a relatively attractive style. They're playing with the ball. Even when they came up here and played against us in the first game of the window, they were not just bunkering and countering. They wanted to play with the ball. They wanted to be the protagonists and to be proactive. And those are good things to see. So I don't think that Hugo Perez is someone that we're looking at as a U.S. soccer manager candidate, a USMNT manager candidate in normal times. I think normally I'd be looking for someone with more of the Lopetegui uh, resume, right? I want someone who either has a demonstrated resume at the World Cup or a demonstrated resume in Champions League or in a top tier European league. Do you see Hugo being the answer, though? I mean, realistically, in this nine-month stint to come over, get a couple of 
summer Nations League games in and really transform this team into an attacking juggernaut based off of his resume and experiences. And and also think about those guys. Like, what's the credibility, uh, you know, some of these senior guys to have that person come in when they're already in second place from their perspective? Mm-hmm. Greg has been successful in, in, in their goals, which was to, you know, get to the World Cup, you know, and, and mm-hmm. nothing else matters, essentially, if, if there's players like that. How does he win that locker room over in a couple of Nations League games? Yeah, I don't think that he necessarily revolutionizes the team, as you said, but I don't think that you have to revolutionize the team necessarily to get a lot better attacking output from this team. And, you know, maybe that's naive for me. It truly could be. But again, looking at the pieces that are available and the talent that the U.S. has and the failure that we've had to create chances and to um, just have a, a free-flowing, fluid attacking play, um, again, if, if you just looked at the player pools for the different nations in CONCACAF, you would expect the U.S. to come out and be romping. You, you would think that it would be like when I watch Belgium play against more of a mid-tier UEFA country, and that's just not the performance we've seen. So, so I don't want to stand here and say, the U.S. would be a massively, massively better team under Hugo. Again, I think our options are very limited in this specific situation that we're talking about. But I do think that a manager could come in and almost take some of the shackles off that Verhalter seems to have this team playing with, and that that could see a relatively serious improvement in the team. Who, under any of these guys, do you see as being the the person who changes the game? You know, like if if we had a better attacking coach, who's putting who's putting the ball in the net more than they are currently? Where who is shackled? I guess your your uh, Christian Pulisic is the obvious one, yeah. right? He comes to mind. You know, we've seen his performances with Chelsea in the Premier League, and we've seen them in the Bundesliga and Champions League. He's such a special player, and his club form isn't the best right now, but we've seen him do really special things with the U S even when his club form isn't at that top notch. So I think he's the obvious one. Um, but haven't we, I mean, haven't we kind of seen his numbers taper off at Dortmund? We've seen it now twice kind of around at Chelsea. I mean, is there, is there the possibility that he kind of sparks, but doesn't stay consistently at that top level? Um, I think it depends on how he's used. Um, we saw his level, when EPL returns to play and he was scoring goals and he was toasting defenders, we've heard Premier League defenders like Joe Gomez say that Christian Pulisic is the player they would least like to defend. So if he's causing problems like that, but we can't get him in the right situations, I think part of it comes from just watching the games too and saying Pulisic often receives the ball deep in midfield or in central positions with the U.S. I don't often see him receive the ball out wide with a chance to run at a defender. And I think he is so special when he gets to do that. And we don't have a scheme right now that allows him to do that. So I don't want to say that bringing in like a Hugo Perez or this manager that doesn't have an amazing resume completely transforms the way we see Pulisic with the national team. But it's so bad right now that I think that almost any coherent tactical setup would be an improvement in Christian Pulisic. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I guess that's that's part of where I struggle with. It's like where would the you know we we don't have a strong striker pool. We have options. Um, to me, the winger pool has been decimated. You know, uh, Reyna's huge loss. You know, Pulisic we're missing for a couple windows. He's just getting back into form. Um, you know, I'm trying to think. Weston McKinney is not getting service. He clearly can put the ball in the back of the net. You know, for whatever reason, we do not have anybody to take a free kick or a corner kick. 
right now. <laughs> it's unbelievable to me that nobody is just sitting there. Like if I were on the fringe, mm-hmm. you know, I would just work at that, you know, Brendan Aronson, someone like that. I mean, you could earn your spot if you become a set set piece taker immediately, mm-hmm. uh, way, uh, you know, guarantee your spot on the, on the team. I just, I struggle at times to see where would the goals come from, even if we had, even if, if Greg brought in an offensive minded, what, what is the missing link in that group? Uh, is it, is it tactics? Um, you know, is it, is it the player pool? Is it, we have excellent players with everything except finishing um, because sometimes the opportunities have been there and, and not been put away. I think of uh, PFOC having a couple of headers uh, that went errantly in the uh, El Salvador game. And then also I think in Canada, um, you know, there were, there was definitely opportunity for Sergeant. Um, he, he just could not find the back of the net there for a month or two for club or country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is it, is it ill-timed or, or in the player pool or is it, is it tactics? I think, I think I'll go back to tactics, not to say that that's the answer and the only answer to your question, but just thinking about this problem of creativity, how do we create chances? And I'm thinking about Liverpool and how they play without a 10 and the statement that the press is their chance creator because they are putting their opponents in bad positions and recovering the ball in good positions, they are already in position to create scoring chances. And, you know, Greg's whole system, he has said, is designed to disorganize the defense and to create chances through disorganization. The defense is never so disorganized as the moment when possession is lost. And I think that could be something really special with this U.S. team. And to his credit, Burhalter has started to press. He has started to implement a press with this U.S. team, but I don't want to say that it's at that level that it could be of intensity and of in focus. Um, and again, I hear I think of Jesse Marsh here of um, an all-out pressure on the other team, and the moment that we recover possession, going upfield with aggressiveness and refusing to back down, refusing to turn and make the safe pass back to the center back or the defensive midfielder or the goalkeeper, but forcing it down the throat of the opponent. I think that could be a dramatic change. I agree. And I, I think we have seen it a little bit um, in MMA um, since we kind of have discovered that. But to your point earlier, I, I don't think Greg has done well enough to develop the, the depth of the pool. And, you know, I, I you know, there's a, a big debate today about Luca de, de la Torre as, you know, the, the savior of soccer. And I, I think a lot of us are more debating at Luca as like a, like a B, uh, you know, with Busio and the second unit. And I thought about this today, you know, my, my point was, you know, you look at the El Salvador, you look at Canada, uh, the first time, you know, it was our, our second game, Jamaica, the second time, you know, we've always struggled to string two games together in a row. And we've pushed, I think, MMA. Um, to try and be all things all the time. Mm-hmm. I do think had Greg developed a depth there, we wouldn't have the um, inability um, to continue in, in the play when we when we did take the ball away from the other side and we turn around, pull it back, and, and try to beat people uh, through control um, and possession. Uh, I think there's opportunity there. And, and had Greg continued to develop our depth, I, I think we might have seen some different results and might have come into this last window already up five, six, seven points, um, just chipping away at, at opportunities like the first game in El Salvador, or, you know, uh, getting a draw at, at Panama. You know, there was opportunity there with a tweak of our depth chart um, that could have been the difference uh, mm-hmm. and not necessarily this transformative effort. It, it's really just seeing what's going well and, and building depth there. 
Yeah, and there's always going to be a significant drop off after the first 10 to 15 players in the pool. Right. You know, if I sub Luca De La Torre on for Weston McKinney, that's still a significant drop off in terms of the player and the abilities and everything he can do. But if you're looking at specific skill sets, you can minimize that drop off. You know, when we were thinking about Canada this window and they're losing Alfonso Davies, he is such a special player and such a difficult assignment for any opponent. But when I thought about them not having him, it didn't give me a lot of confidence because I know that they can stick Junior Hoylet and Tejon Buchanan out wide and they can, they can cause problems for us because of the runs they make aggressively and the pressure they put on our defense. And they don't have to be Bayern Munich level players to do that. So I do think that you're spot on and the system can enhance or detract from certain players' abilities. And if you can find someone who fits well, and Luca seems to fit very well right now, the difference can give you that comfort. You know, now I can take off Weston or Eunice at the 60th minute mark. I can bring in Luca, and they're fresher for that second game of the window. Yeah, and you brought it up. I think we talked about it earlier. You know, it's like the, the gap in talent is a big drop from Weston to Luca, but it <laughs> should still be significantly higher than several of our CONCACAF opponents. And that's no disrespect to them. I mean, it's just the level that they play it. It's the same way I feel about some of our MLS players. They're just not facing the same level of competition week in, week out, the pressure uh, that a Luca De La Torre feels in Eredivisie and, you know, some of these other uh, European clubs. And so even to drop from West to Luca, we should still be at a significant advantage uh, in the midfield uh, against the El Salvador's against uh, a Jamaica um, you know, who's using a Speedy Williams as their defensive six. That's a former Lucidity City player uh, who now mm-hmm. plays at, at Tampa <laughs> mm-hmm. Rowdies. I mean, he's a great player. I love him, you know, but, but he plays at USL, um, you know, as, as a, as a um, defensive midfielder. He should not be serving up balls uh, that are beating uh, consistently, you know, some of our players. So anything uh, else on Burhalter before we, we wrap? No, I'm sure that there will be hopefully some comments and discussion and maybe some things that we haven't touched on. A couple other names I would throw out there. Tab Ramos is one who knows our young player pool very well after coaching multiple U20 World Cup cycles. There's probably not a coach alive who could come into this job who would be better prepared and understand both who are some of the best players and the style of play that fits them well based on how he's done at U20 World Cups. No coach is perfect. Tab has his favorites. I remember some grouching about Brandon Cervania, I think, getting too much playing time and Chris Durkin, that we had too, too soft of a midfield at the U-20 World Cup with Mendez and Durkin both in there. Wow. Um, so again, none of these guys are magic fixes, um, but that's just another name I'd throw out there. I think one other, because at this point, we're probably just talking about bringing in someone from MLS, is Oscar Pereja. I think he's... Um, he has a good background, both with FC Dallas and now with Orlando City. And his time at FC Dallas has given him exposure to some of the player pool that we have here as well. So almost half of them, just, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and Oscar's been gone a couple of years, yeah, so yeah. it's not he's not going to be up on Justin Che maybe or Pepe as much. But uh, those are just a couple of other names I'd throw out there. Um, if you're in the yeah. front office today. You walk down to Ernie and and the team and and talk about replacing Greg before this window. Are you, are you at that point uh, with this team with you know six weeks, seven weeks to start making phone calls if they haven't already, um, you know, and 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 feel out uh, a B coach? Would you be making that conversation happen right now? I would be having the phone calls at least. 
um, to know the options. Um, it's, it's so possible, it's very possible that there's not a coach right now who's interested in this job, who is close to the caliber that we should be looking at for a men's national team manager. But I think based on how limited this team has been and how much it's underperformed, despite some good results, that those, those results can mask performances. And so at least you have to know what the options are to be able to say, okay, we can ride this out with Greg. We will probably qualify. What are our other available options? And then yeah. to see, and those, I mean, those conversations should be going on a lot of the time. Um, it shouldn't only be when we reach for the panic button that we're starting to understand who some of the options are or what names are interested in. But yeah, yeah, I'm making phone calls. My guess based off of how it went with Jurgen, because, uh, you know, most people know, but, you know, maybe not everybody that Jurgen was intended to be fired about five or six months before there was a health issue with somebody on the board. And so they were waiting to kind of get that final sign off. My guess is they probably had a B candidate at least a year ago, warm, warming, warming up. You know, my guess would be right around that Canada loss, uh, Nations League. They probably started making some calls, seeing who was available, probably had an MLS backup, a Bruce Arena, Bob Bradley type, you know, somebody that's been wanting it for a while, probably not been in contention or has already had the job that would be willing to be a backup and probably had some things sort of signed off at that board level so that they wouldn't run into that fiasco again. That's my guess. I would guess Bob Bradley was probably high on that list uh, based mm-hmm. off of LAFC success at the time, you know, mm-hmm. um, obviously he's moved on and now in, in Toronto's front office. Um, but I wonder if, if, if he was probably warmed up for the position. I don't know that they would be calling Marsh maybe once he was let go just to, just a field, but I agree with you. I think that should be an ongoing practice regardless of where you are in the standings, just to, just to know your options, you know, um, you know, you don't get that many opportunities to screw up, you know, at this level, <laughs> And, and based off of not making the World Cup, I think we probably had that, you know, going pretty well before even qualifying started. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Thanks for this conversation, Marcus. It's It's been enjoyable for me to get into the details and to get in depth and to try to get beyond some of the some of the initial pieces of the argument that that happens so often online. Yeah, it's fun, man. Thanks for, for coming on and uh, look forward to the next uh, conversation. Likewise. See ya. See ya. Thank <laughs> you.